It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Episode 5. Episode 5. What's up, Julie? How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm uh, pretty pumped up about this episode. It is chock full of good stuff. Yeah, so happy Wednesday to you as well as the good listeners out there. Quick housekeeping. I promised actually when we did the uh, last recording a couple of weeks ago, that I would try to run down the uh, some additional details around the Paramount Picture Diversity Plan from their CEO. Uh, and unfortunately, I looked under uh, a few search engines. I checked LinkedIn, Twitter, and I was unsuccessful in finding anything additional on the Content Creation Council. And you may remember, Julie, that the council was actually formed because it's a group that is going to be responsible for checking the various data points around all of the film projects, like who they're using as vendors, where they're scouting locations, naturally, who are the talent in the various projects where they're spending money, all types of data points are going to be coming in. So needless to say, I was unsuccessful in finding out any additional information, uh, but I want you to know that I tried. So I think this is a good second to kind of call out to our listeners if they have any info on the Paramount story or any other juicy DNI intel that we should be talking to you guys about, I know my DMs are always open. I don't know about you, Torn, but I'm definitely interested in that kind of intel. Drop it in the DM. And listen, <laughs> before we get into this week's news, I want to throw out a digital fist bump to uh, Mr. Craig Fisher. He's on Twitter at FishDogs. Uh, for successfully curating his 10th TalentNet event. It actually kicks off the first Friday. He does it twice a year, once in Dallas, and then he does one the Friday before South by Southwest Interactive kicks off. Uh, and of course, we were in Austin at the Whole Foods headquarters, a little karaoke after the event was <laughs> over at Home Away. Uh, nice. But a good time had by all. And uh, I encourage you, if you if you have a chance, get on Twitter, get on LinkedIn, find Craig, look at some of the photos and see when the next event is going to happen in Dallas. But fist bump to you, Mr. Craig Fisher. Thanks for having me down Hell yeah. as one of your keynote speakers. Julie, what are we going to tackle first? What are we going to tackle first? All right. So the first one is a new award I think that we should give on occasion, hopefully not every episode because we don't find hold these on, stories all the on, time. Hold on, we give out <laughs> awards now? What's up? I'm calling it the Diversity and Inclusion Best of the Worst Award. Best of the Worst Award. All right, we're going to have to shorten that, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not even going to spend too much time on it. Maybe we'll just call it the DNI Jackass Award, but it was too much of a jackass move not to mention. So LaCroix Water, um, whose parent company is National Beverage Corporation, put out their earnings statement just last week. And so their earnings were down 38% over prior quarter. That's a, that's pretty bad. Um, so instead of coming up with some good reasons why that happened, um, their CEO, who's in his mid to late 80s, decided to put a, out a statement and saying, managing a brand is not so different for caring for someone who becomes handicapped. Hmm. I'm going to stop there for a second <laughs> and breathe. Um <laughs> Interesting. And 
and goes on to say, brands do not see or hear. So they are at the mercy of their owners or care providers care providers, who, mm-hmm. or owners mm-hmm. uh, who must preserve the dignity and special care that the brand exemplifies. Interesting. Yeah. So let me tell you that their CEO did not do anything to preserve the brand or special character of LaCroix Water or National Beverage Corporation. And what's the most interesting thing is this came out. There's been some backlash. They gave a statement that said, oh, this guy's pretty old, so... It's okay. Really? They said that? No, it's not okay. And age is not... Not okay. Yeah. Age is not a reason for a person to lean on as it relates to, uh, you know, mincing or or shall I say, uh, marrying together a string of words that are absolutely... Uh, disrespectful to an entire population of people. So no, it's not okay. And and if I can side rant for 30 seconds, maybe not that long, but my pet peeve in life is that for 30 plus years, we have been trying to get people to say people with disabilities, not the disabled, not the handicapped, not the R word, not any of those words, but to acknowledge us as human beings. And still, in a goddamn press release, we've got taking care of the handicapped who are owned by these people because we can't see or hear anything. And that's an acceptable response to shitty earnings. So I'm wondering, is that press release still up? Oh, yes, it is. I literally just checked before we started recording. Actually, I should have asked a different question. Had they put up a an additional press release or some statement that reframes his messaging and perhaps apologizes <laughs> on behalf of the organization? No, the the only statement that I've been able to find was to Vox when they did this story. And it says Nick Caparoella, who's the CEO, is a very caring person and he's not young. He works every day to make products and excite customers with the brand. And what he is saying that he is the loving care one provides someone with special needs is what he does with this company every day. What? Oh, so that's why LaCroix Beverages gets the best of the worst award today. LaCroix, you have been inaugurated. <laughs> we welcome you officially to Crazy and the King. We tend to want people to make our conversation path because they've done something Uh, a bit differently. And so hopefully you and your employees will redeem yourself in a totally different way. Uh, Julie, let me tell you, uh, Snap looks like they are in the news. Uh, I found a story over on the Wall Street Journal. They actually uh, settled uh, with some women over the layoffs. And I don't know if you saw the story, but basically uh, the story talks about a disproportionate amount of women who were laid off in one of two rounds of layoffs in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, And basically in the Wall Street Journal article uh, that I read, it listed Snap, which is the parent company of Snapchat, uh, that Snap paid some additional settlements to at least three former employees. And what I'm not sure of is the the amount of employees that were laid off altogether. Uh, What Snap spokesperson is saying is that they don't necessarily agree with how this story has been categorized, saying that 70 percent of the 2018 layoffs were men. But the challenge here is that in one of those rounds of layoffs, um, it impacted nothing but women, six in total from two small teams. I believe it was equally broken down on one small team. And I don't know how they classify small. You know, is that less than 10 people, less than 20 people? But on two small teams, uh, they lost a total of six women. So I'm not sure of, of how 
really to get into the detail. What I do know is that they paid some money. But I'm curious if you can chime in for a moment, Julie, what's your position on companies like Snap not releasing their diversity reports? And I'm asking for a reason because I'm going to share something that I shared down at TalentNet last week. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we say fairly regularly how much we appreciate transparency and how critical we think transparency is to getting to true diversity. And I, I was taking a look and I, I found one article where Snap reported about 13% of their tech roles were filled by women. So if they were 30% of the layoff, maybe they were two times as likely to get laid off as men. And I'm just kind of making that math up as I go. But I mean, that's a real problem. And when 70% of Snap users are women, that seems like probably a group of, of employees that you want to invest in when you're losing money hand over fist like Snap is right now. They just got a $250 million investment from a Saudi oil. I think they could benefit from a little diversity so they could better engage those female users. Yeah. So um, my my position, you know, certainly I appreciate uh, when organizations release the diversity report, diversity reports like you, you have uh, illustrated. But I'm also of the opinion that I don't really need your report. What I do need is to see that you are serious about this work. And um, speaking of seriousness, you know, the story went on to say that Evan Spiegel, the CEO, became more aggressive about enforcing values. Um, and in short, what he said last year was that you can be a top performer, but if you're a tool to work with, uh, this may not be the best <laughs> place for you. And part of that was prompted because uh, a woman engineer wrote a terse email saying, and quote, an engineer can be a person of color or a person who isn't straight. And that email got Evan's attention. So the question really becomes for all of our listeners out there, how do you handle layoffs when you already have little representation? Listen, Julie and I are not just doing this because we're here to try to have gripe sessions. We really want this to be learning through real-time event. We want you to consider real-time event. And so one of the questions that I have for all of you listening is how, in fact, do you handle layoffs uh, when you already have little representation uh, in your organization. And then number two, you know, underrepresented, uh, you know, is, is, is the most recently hired individual. They're performing up to par, but the team is being disbanded. Do you keep them over someone with more tenure? So put another way, you know, the saying used to be uh, last in, first fired. And in many of these instances, the underrepresented talent is going to be the last one in. They're going to have the shortest uh, term of tenure. And so if, in fact, they are performing up to par, I did not use the word better. I just simply said they're performing up to par. Do you keep them so that you do have diversity and representation over someone who has more tenure. I just want you all thinking about some of these things as we push through these stories. Julie, you got something happening right in my backyard. I'm going to let you take the lead on this joint. <laughs> um, yeah. No, yeah. seriously. It, let me tell you. It is. Seriously. This is this location that you are referencing is about 25 minutes from my home. Wow. And I know people that work there. Go ahead. Really? Okay. So this story is from the, the Baltimore Sun. And it is about Erickson Living Retirement Village. And they're actually owned by, I was reading today, one of the eight billionaires. I'm, I'm sure you're probably number seven, Torrin, um, that live in Maryland. 
Jim Davis. He is the chairman and CEO of Redwood Capital Investments, but he's also, interestingly enough, a chairman and a co-founder of the Allegis Group, which I'm uh-huh. sure most leader or most listeners know is one of the nation's largest staffing and recruiting companies. Yep. And so really interesting. A senior level leader, a director, so not just in one of the the long-term facilities, reported to HR that they felt like one of their employees, one of their subordinates was being discriminated against because of her disability. And very near and dear to my heart, the person that she was trying to protect um, suffered from depression and anxiety disorder, two of my disabilities as well. And upon reporting this to HR, subsequently, <laughs> there was a restructure. And I'm, I'm going to assume this was at corporate because this was a director level title and was really specific, actually. I think it's interesting. The title was over health services, global diversity, and director of health services, talent development, and global programs. So that's a pretty deep title, a pretty tenured title. And so... During this restructure, the the director of health services who reported out to HR that there was potential retaliation or discrimination against her subordinate, she was fired as was her subordinate, the person with the disability and no one else. And no one else. Restructure is a pretty strong damn word, right? I mean, those are, that's a big technical term for we're jumbling everything up and we're reorganizing and we're doing this. Yeah, no, you just fire two people. Yep. And so interesting enough, and and I I really want to hear your thoughts on this, Torn, is that retaliation is actually covered under the ADA. Did you know that? I did. Absolutely. So this, I think, was was interesting because this is the first time I've seen this in a new story. But what we see here is that if you are a whistleblower, basically, the employer cannot hold you liable or retaliate against you in any way under the ADA and Title VII. And so it's actually much easier to prove that you discriminated against someone in a reta- retaliation for whistleblowing than it is to to prove discrimination against the ADA because they're very clear and cut actions, generally speaking. Yeah. And so, Julie, let me tell you really what we have in this scenario. You've you've used some words, uh, whistleblower, retaliation. Uh, You talked a, a bit about ADA and all of that is accurate. What we see playing out here is something that I cover when I go inside of organizations and it's called covering C-O-V-E-R-I-N-G. And it's the work based off of the 1963 book by Irvin Goffman titled Stigma. And in that book, what Irvin Goffman, he's a famed psychologist. He says, basically, if an individual cannot live up to the expectations or the perceptions that people have, then an individual tends to retreat. We kind of fall back. We don't necessarily want to be front and center. We diminish in terms of visibility. And and Kenji Yoshino, who's a professor in New York, he actually teamed up with Deloitte in twenty. Uh, I want to say twenty twelve or so. And they uh, they they went and did some research looking at about 3,600 managers. And what they found is that people cover on one of four axes, and I won't go into them today, but what is playing out right here is advocacy. That supervisor was an advocate for her uh, employee that happened to have a disability. She was an advocate and she was penalized for being that advocate. Yeah, she absolutely was. And and I think it's 
also really interesting is that this happened in 2016. So this is maybe two and a half years into to this restructure. And yeah. the EO tried to come to an agreement. They tried to get a settlement. And this company is taking this one to the to the all the way through. And I, I did what I always do. I got on the PACER system today and s- try to see if I could find any court filings yet, if we could get deeper into detail. And it, this case is so fresh that they literally have nothing but the subpoenas and the filing. And so there's not detail. I think we'll probably revisit this story when we get some more of that. But I, I think the important kind of takeaway for this is base minimum, put your EEO tools in place as an employer, they're there to protect you and to protect your employees. But you should also create a means for employees to report discrimination through protected channels. And I'm sure this this woman, the director, thought that she was going through protected channels because she went to HR. And, and sad to say that in this case, she wasn't. And it, this is a, there's a lot of training. Your leader should know better minimum, right? Just minimum. That, that going back to, hey, don't be a tool from the Snapchat story, that you can't retaliate against advocates. You can't retaliate against people who are protecting and caring for their employees in the way that you really want leaders to do. And you need to focus on hiring more diverse talent and getting your leadership on board. I was checking out the just the executive makeup and there there's a CDO who carries that title along with another SVP of HR title. There's no diversity on the board. There's very only two women in leadership on the executive level. So there's a lot of opportunity for Erickson to get this right. And I would think with someone at the helm who, who opened Allegis and who has a, a stronger commitment to diversity and inclusion would really be pushing them to get this right. Absolutely. No, I completely agree, man. Uh, this is not a great story and it's a real story and um, I'm hoping that the litigation falls in favor of the individuals that were let yeah. go. You know what Absolutely. I'm saying? Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm in love with this next piece that you have. I actually printed it out and highlighted it. So I'll kick us off on our next story. Yeah. So it's not really a story. It's more of a white paper pertaining to the uh, DNI space. And, and it was a white paper done by Russell Reynolds. And for those of you who are perhaps unfamiliar, Russell Reynolds is you know a management consulting firm. They focus heavily on uh, executive level placement and strategy and consulting, 46 offices in 26 different countries, billing well over $400 million in revenue, probably closer to $500 million in revenue. This firm has been around a while, started in New York City, 1969. And and I actually posted this link uh, on a couple of places uh, last week. I posted it uh, uh, in a Facebook group, a global diversity group on Facebook. Uh, and then I posted it on my personal LinkedIn page. And really what you all will find when you find this report from Russell Reynolds is it really looks at the diversity and inclusion space. And it talks a lot about some of the things that we experience and whether or not individuals are being effective, the tenure, the average tenure, perhaps the career track of of the average person that's serving in the diversity and inclusion space. And the reason why I'm talking about it today is not because I want to swayed you from downloading the report and reading it because I want you to, but I'm highlighting it because a few things jumped out for me. Number one, that many chief diversity officers do not have any power internally. Number two, many of them 
are not able to perform because they don't necessarily have the correct data. And then number three, C-suite leadership is not on board, not on board. And I had a fantastic exchange with Joe Santana, well-respected in our space. He's up in New York City. He commented on the piece on Facebook. And for me, my gripe with reports like this are really, really simple. I understand that it takes time to collect the data, but when you are a $400 million organization, when you've been placing executives in organizations for as long as I've been in staffing and longer, uh, I just feel like companies like Russell Reynolds and Corn Ferry and Hydric and Struggles and Stewart and others, I feel like these really big executive search firms that are making tens, hundreds of millions of dollars are really sitting in a position of taking opportunity just for the sake of taking that opportunity. And then they try to figure out other ways that they can continue to create revenue. They knew a long time ago, three years ago, five years ago, that chief diversity officers in a lot of these organizations didn't have any damn power. And so for them to finally put a report out in 2019, I find that to be, you know, actually infuriating, to be quite honest. And I just want them and people that work in those organizations and organizations like them to be more honest, be honest in this space. If we are going to change the narrative and the result around diversity, equity and inclusion and belonging, if we are going to make progress, then you have the ears of these executives all across industry, you know, coast to coast and border to border. There is no reason for you all to go inside of these companies, take these search assignments, take these strategic assignments, and then not tell the truth. Tell the truth so that we can make a difference in this fight. So I want people to download the report. I want you to read it. But then I want you to do something after you read it. I want you to find your voice in your organization so that you can begin to speak up and tell the truth as well. First of all, Torn taking us to church, like, like I always love when I get to see him live. And you're absolutely right. And here's the thing that I, I think is, is really interesting. All of the companies that we've talked about so far today do not have a standalone chief diversity officer. I checked on SNAP. We've nope. got a shared position at Ericsson. LaCroix does not have one that I can find. They have very diverse or very little diversity in their boards and in their executive leadership. And I kind of compare hiring a CDO can sometimes be like buying the latest talent acquisition software. And what happens, a company gets very excited. They're going to have this really bright, shiny object that's going to fix all of their problems. And then they invest in it and walk away. And they give no resources, no power, no metrics to be able to get done what is proven to drive your business and to drive outcomes is really just a showpiece in a lot of cases. And I think this this paper really does a nice job of pointing that out. And like I said, I downloaded, I highlighted one thing that really stood out to me is, you know, what does a good chief diversity officer look like? And a lot of times in, in my day job, we run into chief diversity officers who really are, have gotten kind of stuck. And maybe for a lot of the reasons that you're talking about in being training leaders and, and they're doing a lot of training doing a lot of community events through their ERGs and that kind of thing, but they're not disrupting. 
and they're really stuck in we're only comfortable talking about race and gender. We only have an appetite for race and gender. And in my experience, the best DNI leaders are pragmatic disruptors. They know how to get the leadership to move on different activities. They know how to push the bar to diversity groups that are outside of race and gender, but not lose the race and gender story in their story. And they're fantastic storytellers who really take some of that power and take that data because the data is there. The data is in your applicant tracking system. It's in your recruitment marketing system. It's in your HRIS. It is there, but they don't necessarily know how to leverage that data to get the buy-in to go where they need to go. So, you know, that's my one side note. I love the pragmatic disruptors. I think that is the strongest quality I've seen in being able to push true diversity, equity, inclusion forward in an org. Absolutely. No, you got it. We got to be able to put people in that can galvanize others. And it requires that you show up and show out a little bit and you cannot be afraid to do that. Absolutely. What do you have next? Um, you got a quick story for us on a molecular biologist, right? Yes. You know, just a way to, to wrap up the, sto- the, the week. Um, but no, seriously, that this one hurts, Torin. Um, so this is from ABC News out of Australia, a molecular biologist um, who has a, a genetic form of a motor neuron disease, which is a very significant disability, um, decided that he was going to go on a Royal Caribbean cruise with nine of his family members and, and caregivers, and then got to the ship and was told by the captain and the doctor on board that they didn't have enough information about his disability, so they weren't going to be able to or allow him to be on the ship. And mind you, he didn't just sign up for the cruise like a month or two in advance. You know, this he put some considerable time in front of that decision and had been corresponding with representatives from the cruise line. But yeah. I don't believe that they responded back to him, right? No, it, it, it just, this was just a miss on every single front. Not only did he probably have tens of thousands of dollars between his family into this, into this vacation, they had driven hours, he had special equipment that had to go with him on the ship that they had to have specially freighted over. And he had two caregivers and his wife with them. So he had an accessible room. It was paid for. He had all of his stuff that he needed and he didn't need anything from that ship captain except for to let him through. And they said no. Yeah. So I think the reason why we got this out for you all is again... You know, it's just a matter of 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 understanding that diversity and inclusion happens both internally and externally in an organization. And that when you are thinking about diversity and you are thinking about how it plays out, you have to understand the impact that it has on the brand outside. It's not just your employees that we are are talking about we're talking about how do you show up from a DNI perspective in the marketplace how do you show up with your customers how do you show up as it per, uh, pertains to exploring new ideas and where those ideas are being generated from and how they are being manifested and cultivated and it of course shows up in your talent so Royal Caribbean, you failed miserably as it relates to this incredible family, his uh, eight or so uh, individuals that were traveling with him. And I suspect that you will pay some price for that lack of communication. So, but here's the thing. Here's the twist, right? Is I want Royal Caribbean to keep going. 
they screwed up royally in this situation, but they recognize that people with disabilities and our families have and spend about $17 billion on travel and leisure every single year. And they have done a phenomenal job of creating accessible rooms on allowing support dogs and, and service animals and even having qualified readers for people who have who are blind or have low vision um, to support them on the ship and on excursions. And they really focus and specialize in wheelchair accessible con- uh, excursions. And what pains me about this story is not that Royal Caribbean screwed up because they did and they'll take a brand hit. But the thing is, is that from a customer perspective, they are very engaged and very inclusive on their face and in their practices. What happened in this story was a fail, but this is a real opportunity for them to keep going and doing it better by training their crew and and those ship leaders and doctors to understand that they don't require any documentation. If that person wants to get on board and they've paid for their ticket, they should be allowed to board. But they also need to train those leaders on how to serve customers because this is what this gentleman is. He is a paying customer. Yeah, but Julie, I don't know if this is, you know, again, I think that the training is definitely warranted and good, but we are pushing the cart, you know, down the street a little bit further. We are back at the communication level. This man and his family were communicating yep. with them via email, via phone, via Skype, whatever method they were using, and they had not received any response to their communication. And the only no. response he got was, no, you can't get on the day that he arrived. No, you're absolutely right. This is a failure at every point. So they need to have accommodation specialists on the ship. They need to have an accommodations hotline if, that the crew can pick up and say, hey, this is the situation. I, I just want to make sure I'm clear to go so that they have that extra backup. And they need to put standard service level agreements in place so that when someone submits that kind of a, a request, which is not required, it's really just informational, that they're getting that communication back to that individual in a meaningful customer-focused way within 24 hours, within 48 hours, that they're setting that expectation and that their crew understands that lack of communication or a failure on at, at an earlier point does not excuse their behavior to discriminate against this individual who is a, a full-blown and, and very highly, you know, has spent a lot of money on this kind of activity to do with his family. And I was checking out the, the Royal Caribbean Career Center because that's what I always do, right? And they've really focused externally on their brand for people with disabilities, but there's not a lot in terms of diversity and inclusion. And if they had people with disabilities working in the call center, working on the ships, doing those things that we could see, that gentleman probably would have had a better experience because their workforce would have been more reflective of people with disabilities. But here's the last thing, and I'll get off my soapbox, is that here's why I still support Royal Caribbean. They screwed up. But They're doing more than most companies. And most companies see these kind of stories and they go, oh shit, like we can't do this. We can't engage customers. We can't hire people with disabilities because we're gonna have a bad story 
and we're going to have bad PR. So they either get into analysis paralysis, they get into risk mitigation, or they just completely shut down and walk away. I just want Royal Caribbean to keep going. They need to do better, but they're, they're trying. And so many of the companies out there aren't even trying in our community. They're not even giving time of day. And these guys, they're, they're working on it. And their goal, my guess is they're going to get better. And this one-off is a learning opportunity. And how they respond to this learning opportunity is going to be what's really important in their long-term brand impact in getting that $17 billion annually. I agree. You know, they definitely don't have to be perfect. You just have to be intentional. And so they can um, certainly make this right. And I believe that if, in fact, they are committed to DNI and, you know, the customer experience, then they will put forth the effort to make it right. We kind of know the brands that are doing it right. And we knew about Royal, I knew about Royal Caribbean doing it right from a customer experience perspective um, for probably at least a year. And so they need to do better, but they also need to be more reflective of their hiring practices so that people who are in these lines of operation are thinking about the different um, ways to engage their customers who have disabilities. And that's how they win. I got some jumbo shrimp and some couscous I'm about to get to. So let's hit some. Yeah, let's hit some quick mentions so we can get out of here. Okay, sorry, rant over. Okay, so my quick mention this week goes to my very own Ball State University right here in Muncie, Indiana, about an hour and a half north of me, DA Cardinals, uh, Joel Cheeseman's alma mater, by the way. Yeah. And they just received the number one spot on the most physically accessible colleges list for 2019 from College Magazine. That is good news. Definitely. And for me, uh, working on a special project with recruiting daily, and I want to hear from you listeners out there. So pop me an email, torin at torinellis.com, torin at torinellis.com. Share with me the struggles that you all are having regarding DNI. Awesome. Whether you are at the very, very beginning, somewhere in the middle, um, share with me your struggles because I may be able to include some of that content uh, in the project that I'm doing with recruiting daily. Talk to me, Julie. Awesome. Yeah, we'll share that with our customers, too. Um, So I'm on the road again for the next basically month, um, be in New York City for some client meetings and then off to a best practices event that um, one of our client companies is hosting in Connecticut to promote engagement for disability inclusion for corporate leaders. Uh, And then for the first time in a hot minute, I'll be getting together with my team at Disability Solutions to talk about how we develop more strategy and more solutions for those companies that want to do disability and inclusion with us. And I close with love. Catch me this Sunday on Sirius XM channel 126, where I'm speaking to Neil Blumenthal, CEO and co-founder of Warby Parker, discussing the company and social impact. So listen, we went a little long today, (laughs) but we absolutely felt like it was worth it. We want you to continue to make sure that you subscribe, not just listen, but subscribe to Crazy and the King. You can do that on iTunes or Podbean. You can tell a friend to tell another friend that we're talking about real time DNI. You can tell a friend to tell another friend that Julie and I are committed. Thanks for joining us. We're Ghost. See ya. Thanks for listening to Crazy in the King podcast. I'm Julie Sowash, your co-host with Torn Ellis. Follow us on social media as Torn Ellis or Julie Sowash. And also follow our hashtag, Crazy and the King. This episode was produced by my gorgeous husband, Chad Sowash. 
and our music is by DJ Cell straight out of Baltimore. You can find Crazy and the King wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us, and if you like it, share it with a friend. We'll see you soon. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.